book two chapter eight section one of tasker jevons the real story by may sinclair this librivox recording is in the public domain recording by expatriate in bangor maine book two her book chapter eight section one nora has often told me that i exaggerate the importance of the nougat incident that my weakness is a tendency to dwell with a morbid concentration on small inessential details when i tell her that if i succeed in surviving jimmy i shall write his biography she tilts her chin and says i'm the last person who should attempt it between us she says we might manage it but if you're left to yourself you'll make him all nougat when i retort that if she were left to herself she'd eliminate the very things that make him the engaging animal he is and remind her that a straw will show the way the wind's blowing she asked me did any big wind ever blow a straw before it all the way well perhaps i am the very last person he made me the last person by what he did to me but when it comes to exaggeration i haven't attached more importance to the nougat incident than jevons did himself why when he shut himself up in his study that night instead of hurling himself forward in the grand attack he must have sat with his head in his hands brooding over it and wondering what he'd done he must have gone straight upstairs to ask viola what he'd done or there'd have been no earthly sense in what we heard her saying the detail may have been small but it was not inessential when it could turn tasker jevons from the grand attack as he was turned that night i tell you and jevons would tell you it is of such small things that tragedies are made the bitterest the most insidious and when jevons did finally hurl himself when he shut himself up morning after morning and night after night to labour violently on his greatest work though for just as long as he was actually engaged he might be staving off his tragedy he was nevertheless precipitating the event you may say that when you get him there in his study on his battlefield you are among the big forces at once but the interesting thing is that those big forces by their very expenditure released a whole crowd of little infinitely little ones that in their turn in their miniature explosion worked for his destruction jevons struggling with his social disabilities was like a giant devoured by microscopically minute organisms over whose generation he had no control and the greater the man mind you the greater the tragedy still for those two years in edwards square he staved it off it was the very violence of his labour the prodigious front of the battle he delivered that saved him then there was his victory his third novel that for the time threw all minor happenings into the background he was right again in his forecast it was his best work and i use his own phrase it did the trick when it came the grand attack which was bolder even than his first assault carried you may say the whole position after demolishing at one stroke the enemy's defences for he had enemies he was the sort of man who does have them he didn't make them at least not deliberately he couldn't have been bothered to make them but he drew them they seemed to rise out of the ground after every one of his appearances well they couldn't say he hadn't done it this time done it there's no good trying to express such a phenomenon as jevons in terms of literature you can only think about him in terms of action every book of his being an onslaught by which he laid his public low and this time he had conquered america 
don't ask me how many thousands he made by it i've forgotten they've melted into the tens of thousands that he made before he had finished even in the years of the grand attack he was making his old father an allowance and investing large sums in case of accidents he had been putting by even in the hampstead days how he did it i can't think though he has tried to explain it to me more than once the whole thing for him was as obvious as any business transaction he had the sort of mind for which business transactions are obvious he had studied the public he set out to capture he presented the life it knew the moving changing fantastically adventurous life of the middle classes until jevons rushed on them and forced their eyes open you may say at the point of the bayonet the middle classes didn't know they were moving and changing and being adventurous nobody knew it was jevons's discovery then as he pointed out there were innumerable discretions in his valour he knew to a hairbreadth how far he might go and he went no farther he respected existing prejudices because they existed he didn't ask awkward questions he didn't raise problems he had the british capacity for doing serious things with an air of not taking himself seriously and frivolous things with an astounding gravity you can do anything furnival he said if you're only funny enough nora tells me that that really is his secret but he said the whole thing was as calculable as any successful deal on the stock exchange when you asked him then why can't other people do it he said god knows why they must be precious fools if they want to do it and don't find out how i've had to find out for one year the last year in edwards square he enjoyed pure fame and he did enjoy it i think he enjoyed everything like a child with a mechanical toy or a girl with a new gown playing with it and trying it on by snatches when he could spare half an hour from his appalling toil heavens how he worked that year with a hard punctual passion a multiplied energy like five financiers engaged on five separate transactions after victory in the campaign he had settled down to business and the works of peace there was the business of the short story the business of the monograph the business of the magazine article in the newspaper column and the speculations that developed into the immense business of his plays i've forgotten how much he netted by his first curtain raiser that's five as i look back on him he seems to have torn through his stages at an incredible pace there are several that i haven't counted so suddenly did he leave them behind him the stage when he was literary adviser to a firm of publishers who wouldn't believe him when he said the thing was calculable the stage when he ceased to be sub-editor of sport and became editor an appointment so lucrative that you may judge the risk he took when he abandoned it and in between there was his stage of cruelty when he did reviewing it was a brief stage but he contrived to strew the field with the reputations he had slaughtered viola used to plead with him for certain authors like queen philippa for the burghers of calais until his job was taken from him in the interests of humanity now i am speaking in the light of my later knowledge the first effect of these prodigious and passionate labours was beneficent and i shouldn't wonder if jevons who had calculated everything to a nicety hadn't allowed for this too to say nothing of the peculiar purity of his earlier fame which set him in a place apart and assured beyond all possible depreciation so long as he elected to stay there the very conditions of his business saved him he enjoyed in those two desperate years the immunities of a recluse 
the results were prominently before the public but jimmy wasn't his study was literally his sanctuary sitting there nearly all day and half the night he was removed from the world's observation at the precise moment when it became inimical i don't mean the observation of the confraternity of letters which was and always had been kindly to his personality and had taken little or no notice of his disabilities i mean the observation of the world he married into for which disabilities like jimmy's count he was also removed from viola's observation at a time when i think almost unconsciously she was beginning to criticize him when he came to her out of his sanctuary he came with its consecration on him and then there was the appeal he made to her tenderness if the shutters down her back began they were checked by the spectacle of his exhaustion she couldn't shudder at the tired conqueror when he flung himself on the floor beside her and laid his head in her lap i've seen her with him like that once one evening when nora was with them and i had turned in after dinner it was upstairs in that drawing-room in edwards square that they had made back and front in an l nora and i were in the long narrow part at the back you know how those little town rooms go when they're knocked into one the fireplaces in the same wall and windows opposite each other so that the back rakes the fireplace end of the front part viola and jevons were by the fireplace in the front she in her low chair and he stretched out on the rug at her feet and we raked them they didn't know they were observed i think they'd made up their minds that when nora and i were together we couldn't hear or see anything except ourselves and so we heard viola saying what do you do it for and jimmy oh for the fun of the thing i suppose what does one do things for and she it'll be fine fun for me won't it when you've killed yourself when you've burst the top of your head off like the kitchen boiler i should have to run dry first said jevons well you will boiling away seven eight nine hours a day for weeks on end nobody else does it nobody else can do it said jimmy arrogantly it's all very well but if you don't burst your head open you'll get neuritis or cramp look at that hand which hand your right hand silly she took it and poised it from the wrist look how it wobbles he looked it does wobble a bit like a drunkard's and i don't drink he was interested in his hand you goose where's the fun of letting your right hand go to pieces easy on they won't amputate it said jimmy that was in nineteen nine this is nineteen fifteen and only yesterday nora asked me if i remembered what jimmy said about his hand the night we were engaged yes that night i was engaged to nora thesiger i suppose it was our silence that made viola and jimmy aware of us at last for presently i saw jimmy sit up on the floor and take viola's hand and squeeze it and then they got up and very quietly and furtively they left the room and the minute i found myself alone with nora i proposed to her i don't know if even then i should have had the courage to do it if i hadn't been driven to it by sheer terror i forgot to say that i was in edwards square for the weekend and that nora was not staying with her sister this time but with her uncle general thesiger at lancaster gate and for three days ever since her arrival at lancaster gate i had seen the possibility of losing her otherwise you would have said that if ever there was a spontaneous and unexpected performance it was my proposal to nora thesiger but no it seemed that it had been arranged for me by jevons planned with his customary deliberation and calculation long ago this may have been the reason why nora said she wouldn't tell viola and jimmy about it herself she'd rather i did 
i thought i shan't have to tell them till tomorrow i had to take norah to lancaster gate in a taxi and i walked back across the serpentine between kensington gardens and hyde park spinning out the time so that viola and jimmy might be in bed when i got to edwards square i found them sitting up for me in jimmy's study i dreaded telling them more than i can say i don't know with what countenance a man can come and tell the woman he has loved and proposed to three times running that he has consoled himself with her younger sister i wanted to avoid every appearance of a fatuous triumph in my success with nora and after sticking for four years to my vow of everlasting devotion to mrs jevons i shrank from the confession of a new allegiance on the other hand i owed it to nora to declare myself happy without any airs of deprecation and contrition and i had certain obligations to the truth why i should have supposed that the truth should have been disagreeable to mrs jevons heaven only knows i suppose these scruples are the last illusions of our egoism still i think that only an impudent egoist like jevons could have carried off such an embarrassment with any brilliance as it happened it was taken out of my hands jimmy who had foreseen the thing itself foresaw also my predicament and provided for it as i came into the room he said it's all right old man you haven't got to tell us we know all about it i looked at viola she was sitting on part of jimmy's chair with her arm round his shoulder did nora tell you after all i said viola pushed out her chin at me and shook her head no ferny dear she didn't tell me a thing it was your face don't you believe her jimmy said your face hasn't anything to do with it your face is a tomb of secrets a beautiful white tomb and you are all rectitude and discretion we knew it ages ago how could you possibly know it when i didn't because it's one of those things he twinkled that other people always do know were we as obvious as all that i didn't say you were obvious i said it was i sat down facing them and i suppose i must have looked supremely foolish for viola began to laugh and jevons went on twinkling not in the least as if he saw a joke but with a thoughtful and complacent air as if he were turning over the result of some private speculation that had come off entirely to his satisfaction then she took pity on me he means it was bound to happen it was the heaven appointed thing the first minute i saw you wally i thought what an adorable husband he'd make for nora and jimmy's trying to tell you that we've been hoping it would come and wanting it to come and waiting for it to come for the last year i'm trying to tell him said jimmy that we've been meaning it to come and trying to make it come and seeing it come for the last three years this was a blow at the attitude of romantic devotion and i had to defend it do you believe that viola i said of course i believe it if jimmy says so i sent her a look that was meant to say you ought to know better but it missed fire somehow she went on swinging her feet and laughing softly at me over jimmy's shoulder she seemed like jimmy to be contemplating some exquisite knowledge that she had and at last she said aren't you glad now that you didn't marry me i said what am i to say to that jimmy got up and clapped me on the shoulder never mind her he said tell the truth and shame the devil tell her you're thundering glad at that she slid down from her perch and came round to me and patted me very gently on the head i am wally jimmy you're a beast and she went out of the room jimmy said that nothing she had contributed to the discussion became her like her leaving it she had left it to him he got into his chair again and sat down to it now perhaps he said you see how right i was when the first time we ever spoke about it 
My dear Jimmy, I haven't spoken to anybody about it till to night. We spoke about it years ago, he said. We couldn't possibly have spoken about it years ago. At Bruges. Perhaps it was I who spoke. I tell you I saw it coming. Don't you remember I gave you six months? You were out there, anyhow. It's taken three and a half years. Because you were such a duffer. You behaved as if you expected the poor child to propose to you herself. I've been trying to make you see it for the last three and a half years, and you wouldn't. There never was such a chap for not seeing what's under his nose. Nora isn't under my nose. She's miles above it. And if it comes to that, I've seen it for the last three years. He had tripped me up by the heels. There you are. That brings it to the six months I gave you. I didn't mean I was thinking of it then. How could I be? Of course you weren't thinking of it, but she was. Nora? Not she. A child of seventeen. I don't mean Nora. I mean Viola. Viola? Yes, you didn't see what the unscrupulous minx was after. She was plotting it and planning it the first time you were at Canterbury. I got a letter from her at Bruges, I can't show it you, telling me not to worry about you. I was worrying about you, though you were such a damn fool, if you don't mind my saying so. She said you'd got over it all right. She wouldn't be surprised if some day you married Nora. So you see, he said, you needn't bother about Viola. She knew you couldn't keep it up forever. Keep what up? I knew, but something in his tone or in his twinkle made me pretend I didn't. Your wonderful attitude, he said. She meant you to marry Nora. Why on earth should she have wanted that? Well, because I worried about you, and she wanted me to be happy. And because she worried about you, and wanted you to be happy. And because she worried about the kid, and wanted her to be happy. And because she wanted the rest of them to be happy, too. I said, I didn't know what I'd done to be so happy. You've done nothing. You don't owe it to yourself that you're happy. My dear fellow, you've been watched and looked after and protected for three and a half years with an incessant care. If you'd been left to yourself, you'd have bungled the whole business. Either you wouldn't have proposed to her at all, or you'd have proposed three times running when it was too late. I pointed out to him that I hadn't proposed three times running, neither was I too late. All the same, he said, you wouldn't have thought of it if she hadn't gone to the Thesigers, and she wouldn't have gone to the Thesigers if Viola hadn't got the Thesigers to ask her. It was a put-up job. I tell you, my son, you've been guided and guarded. Why, you didn't even see that the child was grown up till I drew your attention to it. There was no use pretending I liked it. I didn't. I said, thank you. If a thing comes off, it's your doing, and if it doesn't, it's mine. He said, it looked like that. When I saw Nora in the morning, she asked me whether Jimmy had said he knew it was coming. I said he had. And I suppose he thinks he made it come. That, I said, was Jimmy's attitude. Well then, she said, he didn't. You don't believe him, do you? Did I? Not perhaps at the moment, and never at any time, as Jimmy believed it himself. But I do think he meant it to happen. It's one of the moves in his difficult game. He couldn't afford to neglect any means of strengthening his position in his wife's family. When it came to acknowledging Jimmy, his wife's family was divided. Portions of it, strange cousins whom I never met till after my marriage, refused to acknowledge him at all. At Lancaster Gate he was received coldly in accordance with the discreet policy by which the Thesigers had avoided the appearances of scandal. Down at Canterbury there were degrees and shades of recognition. Nora openly loved him. The canon had what he called a morbid liking for the fellow. Mildred and Victoria tolerated him. Millicent endured him as an infliction. 
mrs thesiger concealed under the most beautiful manners and the most christian charity an inveterate repugnance i have forgotten bertie bertie who could generally be found at lancaster gate when he wasn't in his chambers in the temple was apathetic and amiably evasive he took the line that lancaster gate took when he referred to his brother-in-law as a clever little beast and to all these shades jevons was acutely sensitive i have known men they were of the confraternity of letters who declared that they could not understand why a man like jevons in jevons's position should have bothered his head for two minutes about his wife's family they considered that jevons's marriage was a disaster not for the thesigers but for jevons and that his only safe and proper course was to leave the thesigers alone but it wasn't so easy to leave them alone when he had married into them and to have left them would have been for jevons a confession of failure he might just as well have laid down his arms or pulled down the shutters of his shop from the very beginning ever since the day when he had met reggie thesiger he conceived that the whole world of thesigers had challenged him to hold his own in it and he was too stubborn a fighter to retire on a challenge besides he couldn't have retreated without taking viola with him and you must remember that he was thirty-two when he married her and that he had behind him an unknown history of struggle and humiliation and defeat the thesigers stood for the whole world of things that he had missed the world of admired refinements and beautiful amenities that without abating one atom of its refinement and amenity had persistently kicked him out besides and this was the pathetic part of it he had an irrepressible affection for the canterbury thesigers and it hungered and thirsted for recognition it nourished itself in secret on any scraps that came its way he met tolerance with grace and any sort of kindness with passionate gratitude i think he would have broken his neck to give nora or the canon or even mrs thesiger anything they wanted and the canon and mrs thesiger wanted nora to marry me it wouldn't become me to say what nora wanted viola in a serious moment threw a light on it i had been dining in edwards square on the evening of the day i came back from canterbury after taking nora down there i suppose you don't know she said that mummy and daddy fell in love with you first well they did they wanted you to marry me to keep me out of mischief but more than anything they wanted you to marry nora you see she's their favorite end of book two chapter eight section one recording by expatriate in bangor maine